I am someone who likes to use new technology. At our house, we long ago disconnected our landline phone and switched to cell phone service. I pay bills online rather than by mail. When going places by car, I love being able to use GPS instead of a physical travel atlas or printed directions. I have even found the benefit of eBooks. Although I will never completely give up the joy of holding a physical book in my hand and turning the pages to read, ebooks do have their positive things, including that they don't take up any more of my shelf space, and they can be checked out from the library and they return themselves automatically so I don't have to worry about past due library books. A practice I haven't moved away from, despite having multiple more modern resources available to me, is that I always buy a wall calendar for my office. These are the kinds of calendars you see in bookstores or grocery stores or drugstores, and they have a theme with pictures for every month. Puppies and kittens, the national parks, travel destinations, just about anything that somebody might be interested in. My tradition is to get a new calendar every year, and I've already purchased mine for 2024, which has pictures of New York City on it. And then when the new year begins, I turn to the January photo and hang up the calendar on the cork board next to my desk in my office. And I intentionally don't flip through the calendar ahead of time, because I get a little bit of joy out of being surprised each new month by what beautiful photo was selected to accompany the season. For 2023, I purchased a calendar created by my friend from Louisiana, Kristen Wheeler, who paints or writes icons of saints. For the past several years, she has used her creative talents to learn about the saints of the church and to depict them in icon form. In following her work, I have learned more about saints I was already familiar with and have learned about saints I'd never heard of before. This week, as I turned to the last month of the calendar, I assumed I would see a depiction of St. Nicholas or the Madonna and Child, something appropriate for Advent and Christmas. Instead, the icon Kristen chose for December was of Lucy of Syracuse, whose life and example is commemorated by the church every December 13th. I may have been expecting to see a comforting, peaceful image as I turned the page to this month of anticipation, but what I got was something else entirely. Lucy of Syracuse was someone who was martyred for her faith in the year 304, and by some accounts, her eyes were removed before she was killed, and she was killed by a sword. The depiction of the violence of Lucy's death, in addition to various symbols associated with her ministry and life, were all on display in the icon of Lucy of Syracuse. I must admit, as I turned the calendar from November to December, I actually gasped in surprise as I came face to face with signs of such suffering and pain where I anticipated finding scenes of comfort and joy. For a brief moment, I considered taking down the calendar, 
wanting to avoid looking at this reminder of the great sacrifice and hardship that can be part of living a faithful life and instead focus on prettier, easier things. I wanted comfort. I wanted joy. We might have the same reaction to some of the scripture passages we hear during Advent. Although we may hear about, or expect to hear about preparing for the birth of Jesus and have already set our sights on a quiet manger and a sleeping baby, these are not the images that we are given. In the church, we follow a three-year lectionary cycle with specific readings assigned for each Sunday of the church year. And in all three years, the scriptures selected for the second Sunday of Advent center on John the Baptist. John, the one who cries out in the wilderness. John, the one who is portrayed not as a safe and respectable person, but as a challenging and fierce messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ. John, who proclaims to us the need for repentance, who calls out for people to make changes in preparation for the coming of Jesus. John, who is ultimately martyred for his faith. John appears to be an unlikely, off-putting, coarse, blunt choice for the one to begin the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. John, who proclaims the need for repentance, who calls out for people to make changes in preparation for Jesus. Wouldn't someone like John be more apt to scare people away than he would be to attract them to listen to the good news of Jesus he has to share? Wouldn't someone tactful, dignified, and socially powerful make a more effective messenger for the Messiah? Although I have heard John's story over and over again, this year I have paid particular attention to just how effective a messenger John is or at least how powerful the truth of the good news is and how hungry people are to hear it. John doesn't proclaim the good news of Jesus in the middle of the town square where it would be easy for people to gather curiously to hear this strange person speak of the good news. John appears in the wilderness and proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And according to the account we have, people from all over flock to him. They confess their sins and they are baptized by him. They leave their homes and their towns and they travel to the wilderness to take part in the good news that John proclaims. Depending on how far the people have to travel, the journey to John may take quite an effort. What about John's message is so compelling that people pick up and go to this wilderness baptizer? What do the people expect to find when they get to John? Are some of them disturbed or disappointed by what they see and what they hear? wanting to find something more encouraging than the message of repentance and preparation that John shares. 
because we hear elsewhere in the Gospels about the extensive spread of John the baptizer's ministry, it is safe to assume that despite the potential shortcomings of the messenger or the difficulties and challenges that are part of the message of the good news of Jesus, this good news is received by many hearers as good news indeed. And they confess their sins. They are baptized and they make preparations for Jesus' arrival. But there are certainly people who turn away or ones who never made the journey in the first place. Those who are waiting, hoping for something better, hoping for something different. During Advent, we are reminded of the importance of waiting but what kind of waiting are we doing? What are we waiting for? How hungry are we for the good news of Jesus? How ready are we to go out into the wilderness to experience this good news? In our own time, who are the messengers proclaiming the good news and challenging us to repent and prepare as we await Jesus? Are we tempted to turn away from these messengers because they don't fit who we think an appropriate bearer of the good news should be? Do we close our ears to messages of good news when they make us uncomfortable or demand of us more than we are ready to give? What do we miss when we pass up these opportunities? If we lived in the time of John the Baptist, would we be ready to journey to meet him in the wilderness? Or would we be more inclined to stay home, waiting for a better messenger, one with a more appealing message? See, I am sending a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This Advent, may we be ready to join John in the wilderness. Because what are we waiting for? Amen.